Today we have a fun study in God and government, continuing our look at divine institution number two, marriage. If you want to find out where marriage started and what it is, so that uh, I know most of the people in the room are married or have been married, some of you for a very long time, and you don't need to be taught what marriage is because you know from experience. But here's the thing about me and you and experience. Experience is a teacher in a way because you come to know things or at least experience things that, and you try to assess them. But truly, if your life is simply your own echo chamber of reasoning or your own little personal laboratory of experimentation of how can I, how does this work? And if I do this, what will happen? Then um, you're, you're going to waste your whole life because God has told you through his revelation um, how things are and what things, how they work. And uh, it's so interesting that if we get God's revelation um, as the determining factor of our conscience, of our, of our, you know, of our norms and standards, of our priorities, then um, the hardest things in life really resolve for us into relationship with God, how I relate to him in this hardship. And of course, we're talking about marriage today, which is the hardest uh, thing that some of you have ever tried to do. It has its many challenges, as we'll see today. And today's message is largely out of Proverbs, it turns out. And marriage in the Bible is a, is a good news, bad news proposition. It's a good news, bad news. Kind of like um, Lauren was talking about sharing the gospel with the kids. One way is to share, share the bad news and then the good news. The bad news is that we're sinners and we need a savior and we have no hope in ourselves and we're hopelessly lost. And, and that's not the gospel. That's the bad news. The gospel is the good news that because um, of our helplessness and God's marvelous grace and his love, he sent his son to save us from our sins, which we couldn't save ourselves because all of us, every one of us is, this is the bad news. We're hopelessly lost and separated from God without Christ. But then the good news is that God sent his son so that we could have eternal life. And so you get the bad news. That's us. The good news, that's God, right? And that's the, that's the, one of the great, most powerful ways to share the gospel because you're giving the context and you're giving the problem and its solution. And so um, it makes sense if you're looking to reason a little bit. Why, why do I need to talk about, what's the point? Why, a, a Jewish guy 2,000 years ago, I mean, so what? Well, there's a problem, and it's the problem, and he's the solution. Well, the good news, bad news tonight is that marriage is a great thing. It's a great blessing. Proverbs 18, 22, one of our life verses, gentlemen, he who finds a wife finds, uh, finds good, actually. It doesn't say a good thing. The Bible never calls a woman a thing. But, um, but she, it is marvelous that God has given us tov, good, in giving us a wife, and favor from the Lord. And uh, life verse, Proverbs 18, 22. But in Genesis 2, you have a problem and solution. The problem, and I've been challenged on this, that Genesis 2, 18 is God uh, proposing a problem. But um, it, it's because people that are not called to be married, as Jesus describes in Matthew 19, don't think it's a problem that they're not married. And neither should we. That's an individual's conscience before the Lord. I've known people that will bully over whether someone's a bachelor or not, whether someone's married, and they'll, they'll well, you should be married. Well, I mean, whose call is that? That's between you and the Lord. Jesus said there's a category of people that have been set apart for, for not being married. So don't, that's none of our business, Really, And so I just challenge you not to be that way with people. I know we want to see young people happy, and we know one of the great sources of joy and bliss is, uh, is living up in the corner of the roof and stuff, and as we'll see in Proverbs. 
Um, but, but no, but we, we want to see people enjoy their lives. One of the great joys is being married. So uh, we get excited. But don't be, don't be a bully about this. Um, we actually just need to keep directing people to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his word, so they can grow and they can be what God wants them to be, married or single, right? But in Proverbs or Genesis 2, the bad news, the, the, the worst thing um, so far in the story is the first time there's something that isn't tov or good in Genesis chapter 2 is that man's alone, Remember Genesis 1, you've all read it a number of times, maybe just recently because we had the, the new year, so you might have started again in Genesis, and you're reading through. We're always reading through, always reading through the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, everything's good. It's good, 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 very good. It's tov ma'ov. Tov is the word in Hebrew. It means good, and it, it's what God wants it to be. He sees it and looks at it and says, tov, and it's appropriate for his intention and his design. He designed it. He built it. He looks at it and says, Tov. And then at the end on day six, Tov Ma'oth, exceedingly good, very good. But here on day six, as we zoom in on day six in Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for man, the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. Adam, which is also translated the man in Hebrew, and so there's a question in verse 18. Is he saying Adam, capital A, the first name of, of the first human, or is he calling him the man still? And so it's in, there's an article here, so we'll say the man. To be alone, I will make him a helper suitable to him. And what I want to focus in on is the word helper suitable. Helper suitable, azer connecto. It's the first reference in a noun form to woman in history. And, and, and I don't mean just recorded history, in the actual events of God's dealings with planet Earth and human beings. Before God made a woman, he called her an Azer Konegdo. And that doesn't sound like a very good word to us because it sounds strange because it's Hebrew. And so what is it? It's actually a noun with a prepositional phrase next to it. Uh, Azer means help. And there are two ways it's used, two references to help in the scriptures. There's God's gift of woman, and then there's God himself. And if you find your Ezer anywhere besides God or his provision, like in Egypt or uh, in the other surrounding nations that are pagan to, to deal with the, the oppression that God is bringing in discipline, if you find help in these pagan nations, that's not help. The only good help for Israel throughout all of the 39 books of the Old Testament is God or his provision, and God is our help. So let's start there. It says helper. It's actually the word is just help, a help in time of trouble. And we struggle with this because in English we have the word the help. Oh, we don't, uh, we don't socialize with the help. And that's not what he means that we have like a domestic servant or something now, right? But she is his help. She is designed to be his help. Now that I said it's a noun with a prepositional phrase, connecto. That's the part that sounds really strange. It's it's key. It's, it's the, the preposition cough, which means like or for. It's, you throw it on the beginning of a word to say that. Negev is opposite. Kenegev. And O is him. It's the prepositional or the, the pronominal suffix. So like, for, in front of, opposite, him. That's the etymology of that word keneg. Connecto, his, his opposite. And so it could be summarized as opposite number or suitable. But notice it's face-to-face -face with in an opposing but helpful sense. And if you just look at the physical design of man and woman, you can say, okay, 
I could understand something about suitable, opposite, appropriate for him. And so he makes the woman. Now, now in, I'm not going to do the whole story, but in Genesis 2.18, we have a problem, and then God doesn't resolve it. He lets us be in suspense. He leaves Adam to learn from his experience in dealing with God that he has a problem, and he has to look up to solve the problem. And what's the problem? He doesn't have any suitable helper for him. Because God tells him there's a problem. God says there's a problem. He's going to make woman. And then he makes the animals. He brings the animals to man, who's the, the ruler of them, to name them. Whatever their name will be, that's their name. Whatever Adam gives them as a name. And then Adam finds in, in Genesis 2.20, there was not found a helper suitable for him. God said he would make a suitable helper. The portrayals of God makes the animals and brings them to Adam, and he doesn't see that God has done what he said. And then God does the capstone of day six creation. He puts man to sleep. He takes a portion of his side. We've often traditionally translated it rib. Okay? We, we take the rib of Adam. God takes it, and he doesn't create bara. He forms. He bana. He forms it, fashions it, builds it, as a craftsman does, into this magnificent capstone, if you will, of a day six creation. Fashioned to a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. That is a mouthful in Genesis 2.22. He made her and brought her to him. And the man said, we are married. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. After a day of naming that which was under his dominion, he concludes the naming day with naming his wife and gives her his name. She's, she's from Ish, I'll call her Isha. She's from man, I'll give, she's, she's now the feminine form of man, Isha. It's interesting, Luther, uh, in, his, in his German Bible, when he translated the Bible for the German people in their language, uh, he invented a word here. Man is the word for man in, in German. Told you, English is a Germanic language, man. And then he turned it into a feminine by putting in the feminine ending on the masculine man. Man, I think it's manin. I forget my German, but manin is the, is the feminine form. And it, that's not a German word. They don't have that for woman. It's Frau or Frau or Fräulein um, or and it's probably something else I forget. But, but they, they don't say manin, but he did when he translated it because he's trying to bring out that he took the word for man and he added a feminine ending to it. And so he gave her his name in her form. And so... For this reason, you have kind of the, the way the narration works is the Moses puts the camera back on him and now is the narrator and says, this is why, marriage. For this reason, man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And that's the design and the origin of marriage. And so there are a couple of things. When God made woman, he made marriage. The design blueprint, like the design program for this engineering project of building woman was we have a problem, we need a solution. The problem is man is alone, no suitable helper. God solves that problem by making woman. That's how it works. And all of us uh, knuckleheaded gentlemen know that if we have a wife who is helpful, who is a help to us, and I don't mean she's just making our lifestyle and uh, giving us uh, the womanly touch in, in our surroundings, I mean she's really helping us because now you've got two brains processing instead of just one. 
working the solutions and the problems of life. And as you're working together, you're like, this is such a blessing. And without it, it's, you know, it's unthinkable. Uh, it causes a lot of problems, but it also helps us with a lot of problems. And we've said that, you know, the locus classicus passages for marriage are 1 Corinthians 11. We worked through last time, which is very challenging about head coverings and the symbol of authority that a woman, that Paul's saying she should, if she's going to publicly pray, prophesy in the church family, she should have a symbol of authority over her head for the angels because the angels are watching and they need to see that we're submitting to the duly constituted authority structures God's given us. The assumption is that that God is the head of, uh, Christ is the head of man and man is the head of his wife and there's this headship thing that's established and it does establish authority and that's why we're talking about it in the context of government. We said that 1 Corinthians 11 and then Ephesians chapter 5 and I barely kind of you know, touched the surface, scratched the surface on Ephesians 5 but I did translate it for you. So if we walk through it, it says, to the wives, to your own husbands be submissive as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, and he himself is the savior of the body. And so the explanation, the because, or the for in verse 23, really lets us understand there is a hierarchy established in marriage by God's design. And it isn't something that we assume with arrogance or a domineering spirit. We don't lord it over, and the elders in First Peter 5, those allotted to our charge, but we're an example to them, and we encourage them. And so the shepherd mentality transcends all of God's authority structures. He wants you to be like his son, and his son is the great shepherd. So what's the great shepherd like? Well, in our case, Christ as the head of the church is the one who gave himself as the savior of the body. He's the one that sacrificed himself. And that's, uh, that's central in Paul's thinking to headship, the savior of the body. Christ doesn't, the church doesn't save Christ. Christ saves the church. See, the one that's willing to take the bullet is the head, the one that'll stand in the gap for the other. And he goes, well, I'm willing to understand that there is a design that is being demonstrated exemplified in God's creation of husband and wife, and it goes to Christ and the church. In verse 24, but in contrast, the church is submissive to Christ. The church is hupotasso. It hupotassos. It puts itself under Christ in an authoritative sense. We're under him. And, and the question is, if it's not authority, in what other possible sense could it be? Now, understand, I know there are people that have been abused, that have been hurt, that they're abusive authority wielders, that, that some of you, and I've known people in our church family in the past, who have thought that if there is any exercise of authority, it is inherently an abuse of authority. Everybody all of a sudden is a little Lord acting and saying, well, you having any power must have absolute power because power corrupts and you're corrupt because you're exercising power or authority. Well, that's not God's design. See, we're supposed to be redeemed. We're supposed to be walking by the Spirit. We're supposed to be humble in the pattern of our Savior. And that is the only context the New Testament knows of exercise of authority. Because Jesus is our example, and he is not corrupt in his exercise of authority. The problem is when authority meets our sin nature and becomes uh, exercised or wielded by our sinfulness. And that is a horror. That is the problem of all human government. That's the problem of all marital strife. That's the problem of all fathers and their sons and the, and the children and that problem. That's the problem of every civil government uh, problem. The, the thing that's going on to, you know, we could always mention the headlines about some failure in human government or some failure of humans to self-govern so that civil government has to get involved. 
right? And that's always going to be a problem because of sin. But we're not talking about sin here. We're talking about God's design where Christ is the head and the church is the body. Just as, in contrast, as the church is submissive to Christ, so also the wives to their own husbands and everything. And I said last time, to understand what Paul's saying, you don't want to start testing it with the exceptions to the rule that prove the rule. Like, well, does that mean that I have to obey him when he says to do something wrong? If he says, the lower authority says to disobey God, you disregard that instruction and obey the higher authority. And you do it submissively. You submissively say, I can't in this case. And the Bible has plenty of examples of this kind of submission to duly constituted authority that is exercising itself in a wrong way. I'm under you authoritatively, but I'm not doing what this one that you said because we both are under God and I would be in more trouble with him if I did what you said. And that's the rationale. That's, that's the higher authority. That it's hard dealing with things until you bring God into the mix. And if, if God is in the situation between husband and wife, that resolves everything. Well, she won't do the things she's supposed to do, the gentleman says. Okay, right. But God is here and he's dealing and he sees and he will, he will do what he wants to do with it and you trust him through that when it's out of your hands. And that's such a hard thing to do too. It's what's my responsibility versus what's not. So many of the moral dilemmas are, it's my job, it's my responsibility, and I don't know what to do. Well, bring God into it. And I don't mean just be passively and let go and let God constantly. I mean, I have a constant submissiveness to him that he has a plan here, he's gonna do it, and I gotta continually go back to say, what did he tell me to do in this case? I know I'm supposed to love in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is to seek God's best for this other person. I know that's always true. Let's start with that responsibility. And you can do that in prayer. God, help me to, to seek your good for this person as they're being a fool or as they're, as they're twisting the knife in a torturous way. The church is submissive, as just as the church is to submit to Christ, so also wives to their own husbands in everything. In everything, yes, you're always to submit to your husbands, always. Doesn't mean you always obey them necessarily. And obedience and submission are nuances. They go together, but there's a difference between the two things. Uh-oh. So, the church is submissive to Christ. So, in verse so I notice, I like to bring this out. There are three verses, 22, 23, 24, of the wives submitting to their husbands. It has to be in context, a higher authority, lower authority dis- difference between husband and wife in terms of the question of authority. It has to be because of the context in Ephesians chapter five. He always starts with the person in lower authority and then he addresses the person in higher authority, wives and husbands. Then he goes to children and then parents. And then he goes to slaves and then masters. And these are all different arrangements that all include one common thing, which is authority. The authority is exercised differently between husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. It's different. But there is still this common thread that there is one who is the decision maker and those that now have to choose under them to say yes or no with their volition to that duly constituted decision that duly appointed decision. And so we go now to eight verses which address and attack the, the husband, her idios, her, her, her own husband. As for the men, love your own wives. Love your own wives. The command couldn't be any clearer. And it answers a lot of the questions women might have about how could they submit to a man. 
How could I? If it's just authority, it's not just authority. There's authority in the institution. But it is, you're supposed to be submitting to someone who's supposed to be loving. That's easy. So if there's anything that's being uh, rejected here, it's frigidity. That's, that's, a, that's a sinful thing to be. If your husband is loving self-sacrificially as Christ loved, then you're supposed to be submitting. And it doesn't say, by the way, that husbands, if she's submissive, love her. It says, love your wives. It doesn't say, wives, if he's loving you, then submit to him. It says, submit to him. Do your job. And that's really important in the marital discussion is that the most difficult thing is the complex of things. You get to a, a counselor that wants to do couples counseling and, and, and the, you get into the ping pong thing of, well, she does this and he thinks this way and I just know that she's going to say this. And there he goes, he just did it. And all this insanity that, you know, you could pay someone, someone will take your money to walk you through and hear all this stuff out. But eventually they're going to pick a winner. Generally, eventually they're going to say, yeah, she's right and you're wrong. And this very commonly happens. And if you've talked to people that have been in bad counseling situations, they happen a lot. Um, uh, Sometimes the sociopath in the room can convince the counselor that they're not the sociopath. And their projection is powerful more than the, pers- the, the, the sense of the person with the newly minted um, counseling degree. And, and the point is that you get into all this vagary and complexity, and it's just impossible to unwind all the horror of the past errors. And what you have to do is say, you did all that you did, and you have what you need that you didn't do that you're supposed to. You need to repent about. you got to deal with God about. But what is your job? The way to have a marriage is for a man to do his job. And th- guess what happens, ladies, when the men here... The real men hear that they've got a duty, that they've got an obligation, that they've got an expectation that is binding on them until they die. Men rise to that occasion. The Gibor Ha'il, the, the, man of, the mighty man of valor, the Boaz in the room says, oh, absolutely, if this is my job and God clearly puts this on my shoulders, I'm going to do this. And there's something in us that God put in us that drives us to say, I'm going to change that which needs to be changed to get right before God in this responsibility. And that, that's a major correction that we're all in the process of making. Do your job. But I don't think women are any less Gibra Ha'il. You need to be a Ruth. You need to do your job. Do what's given to you. And do it for the Lord. And glorify Him. And all that vague, complex, this is how she did, and now we're in this pattern, and all that. Can, it, it's, you've got problems. We all do. You've got a history together with good and bad. But what is going on right now is you have a job. Gentlemen, she has a job. Do your job. And let's move forward. You can't get the past back. You can deal with the things that need to be dealt with from the past. Okay? But right now, and and loving might be saying, I'm sorry. When you're wrong, it is saying that. But you've got a job to do, and it really simplifies what you will say is impossibly complicated. Now, if you want it to not be able to be fixed, if you want there to be an impossible problem, uh, a stage four cancer to this marriage that cannot be operated on and the person must, the marriage must die. If you want that, don't do your job. Don't let the past be what it is and the present be your responsibility. Go back to the past and try to unravel all that and do something that can't be done right? And ignore what God has said, and you can have stage four marital cancer. But if you want to actually be what God wants you to be and, and success, succeed, then do your job. 
And that is the most important marital counseling that any of us could ever receive. And it, I know, ladies, it hits you differently than it hits us. You're made different. It, it, it there, there's, probably hits you louder when I say do your job. It probably is almost deafening to you because of the way you're made and to men, and they're, they're barely hearing it. I'm going to say it a few hundred more times, and some of them are going to, oh, you know what, I think I should do my job. It's going to occur to them because that we're just... We're just different. But the men are told and commanded, and, in, and it's absolutely imperative that they consistently and constantly in the present active indicative or active imperative love their wives, just as Christ also loved the church. A good and wise man is now going to say, like Solomon, I don't know how to do that. A man with a sense of who Christ is is going to say, I need something more than I have to do what is required because I am not to the standard of Christ. And of course you have the spirit of God in you and the fruit of the spirit is love. Just as Christ loved the church and how did he love the church? He gave himself for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed by the washing of water with the word, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to himself the glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but so that she would be holy and blameless. To get what he wanted out of a wife, he had to sacrifice himself for her. And I want you to see in Paul's logic, there is an inescapable selfishness, a sanctified selfishness, if you will. Men, we're not just loving her for God's sake, we are, but we're loving her for God's sake so that we can have her. That's the picture of Christ in the church. He didn't just say to his father, it's just about me and you, God, and I'm going to do this for the church because I love you. He did it in loving God because he also wanted the church for himself in loving us. And it's vital to get this. And so the man who loves self-sacrificially to the wife who will not submit to that, will not receive that, will not participate in that, who has decided that that's done and she has moved on in her heart. And, and you know, they talk about emotional abandonment on lifetime specials and various things and, uh, and try to justify divorce. Well, he's emotionally abandoned me. Well, that happens. Men, men and women both do that. It's not justification for divorce biblically, but it's a horrible uh, abdication of your responsibilities to say, I'm, I'm just done. We're just going to be roommates or something. And, and when that happens, you know, the man who says, I'm still going to love her self-sacrificially. When he comes to me and says, I've got a problem, pastor, and I don't like to talk to people about my problems. After all, I'm a man, but I want to talk to you because you're a man and I can trust you and you're my pastor. And this happens. And he says, this is what's going on. I'm loving and she's not responding. There's no effect. There's no consequence in, in anything that I do. No initiation is received. It happens and it's horrible. And when that happens, do you know when I tell him? Bring her in here, and I'm going to tell her what the Bible says about her job. I'm not going to say that at all. You know what I'm going to tell him? Well, you need to start enforcing her responses to you by making certain that she has to know. I'm not going to say that at all. Do you, do you know what I'm going to say to him? I'm going to say, do your job. And he's going to say, at first, he's going to be like, I knew you were going to say that, and I didn't want to hear that. And then he's going to remember that he's a man, and he has work to do. 
And he's going to stop feeling sorry for himself and thinking about the things that he doesn't get out of the relationship, which he has a legitimate complaint. And he's got, going to stop looking at what, what I have and what I don't have. And he's going to start getting serious about his relationship with God, the power of the Spirit through him, and his responsibility to love his wife. And that's what I'm going to say. And you know what? The, more commonly, a woman's going to come and say, he is horrible. He is this and that. And you know, I don't like to talk to about anybody about my problems. I'm like, yes, you do. And... Uh, I don't, you know, they, but they don't want to talk to me, but they bring it. And they, by now people know what I'm going to say. And I'm going to say it more gently. I'm going to say it more subtly if I can. I'm going to say, maybe do you think it might be that you should consider just for thought, just think this through with me, that perhaps you should do your job. <laughs> and the best way to do that is to read the Bible with someone and say, what does this suggest about what you might do? And the person needs to say the right answer through tears and all the Kleenex is uh, my job. I should do my job. And until you say it, it doesn't matter if I say it. Understand, it's your job to to say you do your job. But um, in that case, that man who's unrequited, whose love is not responded to, who uh, has a broken relationship that it takes two people to be in this this union, um, he can only look to God and trust in him through this agony. And God, through this, can put him through his paces and make him trust in him. And through this momentary light affliction, bring about proven character. And he can have this long suffering that Paul's praying for. That through the word of God that he's using and living and trusting, he's being able more and more to put on that Christ-like steadfastness. You're being developed and trained. All the hard things in our lives that are relational, God can use these to develop us and mature us for the next phase of his purpose in our coming reign with Christ in his coming kingdom. But, uh, but it's a tough thing, and he has a legitimate complaint, and he needs to stop complaining and start doing his job or get back to doing his job. And that's one reason we are in each other's lives, because you need to know that I'm struggling with X, Y, or Z, and I need someone to know that, that I trust, and that loves me. I need to talk to somebody about it. We need to pray together about it and come alongside, and that is the biblical doctrine of one another bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And sometimes I need to talk to somebody about what's going on and pray with them. And, they, and, and, and just, hey, what am I missing? What am I not thinking about? Help me think this through. And sometimes they need to say, yeah, this is terrible. They need to be Job's friends and just, just, just say it's awful and weep when others weep. But they don't need to be Job's friends and say, you must have really screwed up here. They need to cry when you cry and rejoice when you rejoice. And then they need to be, um, they need to be, uh, what, who's Elihu? They need to say, they need to say, um, yeah, yeah, it's just exactly as you say, and the only recourse you have is a trust in God. And let's keep it before the throne. Let's keep talking to him. He wants you to keep it in prayer. And, and uh, some of you are thinking right now about the hardships you've been through in your life uh, in various ways, not just marriage, but maybe at work. It's always people. There's always some sort of person problem where no matter what you do, you can't crack the code on this other person, uh, you know, responding as they should. And so the, the broken, horrible, toxic relationships. And, um, and, and you've been through it. You're being put through your paces. And I, I challenge you that very often, if it's not divine discipline, then our assumption is that it's God's training us. God is working in this. Uh, God, why don't you take this uh, thorn away? Because I'm doing something. Just trust me. In verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives just as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as also the Lord does the church, because we're members of his body from his flesh and from his bones. There's a little short uh, video going around in the, the kids' reels where there's this guy that says, uh, this woman that's, that says, um, I want a divorce. I don't want to be in this anymore. I don't want to be married anymore. I want a divorce. And the guy says, I understand. She says, I don't think you understand. He says, I, I get it. You want a divorce. And so he even said it back to her. You want out. You want to be free. She says, yes, I want, I want out. He says, so what do you want? She says, I told you I want a divorce. No, what do you want? Do you want chicken enchiladas? Or do you want, because they're planning dinner. Do you want it? Do you want, what do you want to eat? And she says, I don't think you're hearing me. He says, what do you want? I'm going to get, you want fajitas? And she says, you know what I want? I want chicken enchiladas uh, and, and a side of guacamole. He says, okay. And that's the end of the conversation. Because he's got a job to do. And he's going to care for her. And uh, she says she wants a divorce. By the way, on that question of divorce, I'll just tell you, I don't want to step on anybody's feelings or past choices. Understand, I'm just telling you from what the word of God. If he hasn't uh, committed adultery, you don't have grounds for divorce. If she hasn't committed adultery, you don't have grounds for divorce. If they have committed adultery, you can get a divorce if you have hardness of heart. Matthew 29, or Matthew 19. You can get a divorce for adultery if the person has hardness of heart. I mean, you, the, the offended party, are hard of heart. And what is hardness of heart? Unforgiveness. All right? That's the grounds in Matthew 19 that Jesus says Moses gave you in Deuteronomy. And so what Jesus is saying is, this is not the design. Whom God has joined together, let no man separate. So what you're supposed to say when she says, I want a divorce, is you're supposed to say, what do you want? You want chicken or beef? And I will never encourage a man to sign a paper. They have this phrase in the past called, give her a divorce. Give him a divorce, meaning just let it go. She wants out. They're not happy. Just, just, just don't fight it. Just, just give them the divorce. I can't find a warrant for that in the Bible. In this culture, in this time in which I've grown up, there has been no-fault divorce, I think, my entire life. The judge can say on the testimony of one of the parties, the wife can go to the judge and say, I want out, and he can say, you're out. Fine, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not terminating this marriage. That's, that's my understanding of Christ's expectations of us in the time in which we live. And, uh, and I know that's very challenging because you can say, as everyone does, I can't do it anymore. And that's what people do. They tell themselves they can't. Other people around them say, you're right, you can't. Nobody would expect you to. And then they're off to the races with, well, then if I can't, I can't. And then they, then they have grounds. And the, the answer is, you can do what God has called you to do. And that's what marriage is. I say it's a stainless steel blasting chamber that can take the pressure. And gentlemen, you should not be bringing pressure. Wives, you shouldn't be bringing pressure. You should be encouraging one another and loving one another as God has, of course, designed. For this reason, a man will leave or abandon his father and his mother. He will cleave to his wife. This is the quote of Genesis 2.24. And indeed, the two will become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church, that the body of Christ is this unrevealed thing from Old Testament prophecy that is the new arrangement of one new man of Jew and Gentile, both types of humans combined in one new organization called the church, and that's the bride of Christ. Nevertheless, you each individual is to love his, his wife even as himself, but the wife see that she fear the husband. And so we have this graphic that I developed last time 
where you have different roles in this institution of a divine, divinely delegated authority. You have headship, and the head is to lead. He is to uh, engage and initiate with self-sacrificial love. Christ loved us, so we love him in response. That's the love relationship between Christ and the church. So I've invented the word body ship because that's not a word. I know it's not a word because when you write it in a Microsoft product, you get a little squiggly line under it. And that's not a word. And it's not. But headship is a word. Body ship isn't a word. But it's very important. Notice if the head doesn't have a body, well, that's, that's, that's a monstrosity. And if the body doesn't have a head, that's a monstrosity. Do your job. Be who you are. Figure out how you do the best version of this role God has given you. You have plenty to work with. And the judgment seat of Christ and the outcome of how Christ evaluates your role and his work uh, is on the line. So you are called to be the help. His help meet is the best word in English. And what you bring is self-deferring submission. He brings self-sacrificial love. And so what you're deferring to, what you're submitting to is that love. That's the design. And that's a good marriage. That's how God designed it. So let's get some wisdom from Solomon, one of the worst husbands in the Bible. The problem with Solomon and his husband, uh, he's got two basic problems, is that even though he wrote the book on marital uh, love and the act of marriage in the Song of Solomon, um, even though he wrote that, he's one of the worst husbands because he's just spread too thin. And uh, he's got uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines at one point in his career. And uh, that's the first problem is that he's just way uh, un- undermatched for the task that he's assumed to be the husband to a thousand women, um, which is just an, it's an absurdity. It's just a, it's a joke. But, um, I mean, it's, it's not even a joke. It's, it's slapstick. The, the worst thing is that he was led by his wives as though they were the head and he was the body to follow other gods and sacrifice to them. He became a pagan because of the powerful influence of his wives. And I think it must have been, just imagine what his life would have been. Don't try to think too hard about it, but it must have been a series of temporary flings. A series of temporary flings with a few at a time, with the rest of them just kind of in the stable, in the harem. Just imagine what his life was like and um, the, the, the secretary work, the the administrative task for the bureaucracy that is Solomon's wives. What a ridiculous and insane thing that must have been. But anyway, it resulted in some gross paganism and the loss of the kingdom for David's house. At least 10 of the 12 tribes divided the kingdom. All right, the Proverbs in marriage. Proverbs 5.18, we're told, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And that is in the middle of a long poem form that Solomon writes including instruction he received from his father. And you have to understand the Proverbs are from a man's perspective, talking to his sons who are going to rule. That's what they are. That's a primer book for the king of Israel. It's the king, Solomon, writing for his sons. And he says that all through the prologue section of chapters 1 through 10. He's telling his sons how to rule wisely. And so all the things in there, all the compendium of wisdom statements have a purpose. And so that applies to us not directly, we're a secondary audience or a tertiary audience, but it applies to us because we're being groomed in the same righteous wisdom to rule with our coming Savior. So wisdom is wisdom, whether it's the King of Israel teaching his son to rule under God, or whether it's uh, the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, preparing us to rule with him in his coming kingdom. But he says regarding marriage, let your fountain be blessed. And understand in the context, this language of fountain is talking about the source of your 
uh, refreshment. It doesn't mean she's having babies. It means you are being satisfied. That's the language. That's, and it's not a common word for fountain. It's a wellspring. And you don't want your water to be dispersed abroad in the street, trampled on and just drunk by anybody. It's your fountain. And so there's this, you know, if you're really thirsty on a hot day after hard work and you find some cool, clean, like cold water and it's so refreshing, it satisfies that thirst. That's the image of the fountain. And rejoice in the wife of your youth. And these are two commands. These are two imperative forms or volitional forms that are requiring the, the person to respond to them. And, and this is just looking up the word wife in Proverbs. In Proverbs 12, 4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. And watch the amens, guys. Um, 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19.14, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. An excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. And I don't want, that's the good news. I don't want to do the bad news yet. Let's walk through the good news ones real quick, a couple of them, because they're so fantastic, obviously. This is the Proverbs 5.18 we read, let your wellspring, the, a very uncommon word, a very rare word for, for a well or for a fountain, let this source of your refreshment be blessed and rejoice, rejoice from the wife of your youth or because of the Isha of your Na'arot, because, because of her. And this is, this is a very helpful thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. In the Old and New Testaments, joy is something that you can be commanded to, in, to have. You can be commanded to rejoice. Think about that. God, you're going to have to bring something to the table because I'm commanded to rejoice and I don't feel it. What do I do? And that's, that's some prayer time. That's good. But he tells you to do it. So do it. Do your job. I love the commands of Scripture. They put us on duty. A wife of excellence, competence, valor, or might, a chayil, an eshet chayil. Chayil is the word used of Boaz, a mighty man of valor. And it's also used of Ruth. And it means competence or excellence. So you could also translate it valor or might. A wife of excellence is a crown of her husband. Well, let's think about this. If you're a unit, if you're one, a new nation composed of two people when you get married, and that's what you are, you're a new nation of two people, you might have uh, people that, uh, that are naturally born into this nation, okay? And that's babies, but that's what a household is, a new, a new institution, How's the team doing? Is the team honored? Is it advancing? Is it improving? Is the team being promoted? Or are we in chaos? Are we in devastation and ruin? Well, a wife of excellence gets the team on the board. And she's a crown to her husband. Think about that. And this is what happens is we're arrogant and we're selfish and we're sinful and we think it's competition between us. And I'm not going to be a crown to him then there's no crown and there's no advancement for the unit. That's the idea, is it's, it's a team effort. But, a, but like decay or rottenness in his bones is she who acts shamefully. I thought that the parallel in, in the rhyme was pretty interesting in Proverbs 12.4. And this is in the section of Proverbs where it's just, it, there's a thematic connection, but they're individual messages. Each one of these verses, for the most part, is an individual thought you could do its own message about. A wife of excellence is compared as the beginning to... She who acts shamefully, obviously that's the comparison. It's called a contrastive um, or uh, an, um, antithetical parallelism. The, 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 the first line is opposite to the second half, okay? A wife of excellence is compared to she who acts shamefully. 
obviously. But that's the interesting outside, which is the cause. The effect is the focus. The crown of her husband, the wife of excellence is the crown of her husband. Rottenness in his bones is she who acts shamefully. So on the outside, you have character of the woman as cause. On the inside, you have the focus on the effect of that cause. Either the household has cancer or the household is being promoted. Think of it that way. That, it's so amazing. The, 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 the technicolor you get when you check it out in its original language and put things in the order that Solomon wrote them. Again, on the outside, the wife of excellence compared to the woman who acts shamefully. On the inside, the, the effect of that character on those around her. Now, now this, is, this will just break us right, of our, right out of our narcissism. We think that our life is about us, and we fail to recognize that it's not. It's about God, and God is using us in the lives of others. Expand the perspective a little bit and stop being so petty about it's about me. Well, how about, what about you? Are you functioning as designed, the crown? Are you being what you're supposed to be? Or are you failing because you're trying to be something you're not? And that's uh, the wisdom of Proverbs. It's challenging to us in our culture because we have a foolish culture. Proverbs 18.22, we'll do the last, this is the last one. He finds a good wife, literally, he finds a good wife, he finds good, is what it says in Hebrew. Isn't that neat? He finds a good wife, he finds good. I even put an exclamation mark because the language is so terse. He finds a, good, he finds a wife, he finds good. This is echoing uh, Genesis 2.18. It's not good that the man should be alone. Tov. That's why I emphasize it. And thus he obtains favor from the Lord. And I have to say thus, this is connected because of the form of the verb here. It's, uh, it's a preterite, you Hebrew guys. That's, that's not the usual way we start verbs in, in, uh, in Proverbs. He finds a good wife. He finds a wife, he finds good, and thus he obtains favor from the Lord. The structure is verb uh, object, verb object, verb object. He finds a wife is to find good. And really, it's because he's found favor from the Lord. And all these things are synonymous. The good thing in life, the wife that, that, is, that is that blessing from God, but it's favor from the Lord. This word finding favor, rason, this word of rason or, or favor is a, a common thing used both of God and of kings to their subjects. Favor is like when the king bequeaths you or, or passes, delegates down a duchy or a, or a knighthood or some uh, responsibility, some blessing, some title. That's the idea is that God is not giving you property. You don't misunderstand. God is promoting you. Favor from the king, we're in favor, and so we're being promoted. And that's what a wife does. That's by God's design. I don't want to be promotion to him. Well, that's arrogance. That's foolishness. That's failing to recognize God has the design and your destinies are intertwined. You've become one flesh. So figure it out, right? Be the thing that God calls you to be. And again, I told you these are from the man's perspective. Well, I'd love to keep working the Proverbs of marriage with you because we've only gotten through the good news and we haven't gotten to the corner of the roof and the leaking, the leaking uh, constant dripping and all that. But there's a lot of it because women are powerful as God has designed. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the privilege to get together in your word today and think about marriage and your design of it and to revel in your many blessings. Father, some of us are challenged in our marriages where we are trusting you and walking by faith and not by sight, feeling, or affection that we have in marriage. And others uh, are so blessed and encouraged and enjoying their marriage, but challenged in other ways. Father, let us bear one another's burdens and and sanctity, and honesty, and speaking the truth in love, and compassion. Let us be the body of Christ in this little expression, even in the way we encourage each other in our marriages. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.